VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, no Patty Daly. It's Tim Powers. And my goodness, we're early. Like it's 8.59, 22. That's awesome. Uh, good for Noah. Getting uh, the news in early. All you need to know. Happy to be with you here today because I am actually here. I am in the VOCM Valley in town for a few days to see my mom and do a few other odds and ends. It's great to be home. The usual ordeal getting here, uh, which I think is common. I, it's not just my bad travel luck uh, coming home to St. John's. It was again two flight delays to get here but we got here and that's the main thing and there certainly wasn't only me who was on the uh, the traveling odyssey yesterday. Boy it seems whenever you go through Trudeau Airport in Montreal which is the route I most often take there is some sort of delay. I suppose it wasn't that bad last night. It was only 30 minutes but it's um, just in time air service. You remember that old just-in-time delivery uh, that Walmart became so famous for that they just keep enough supplies and bring it in and never have uh, an overcapacity of it so that they would be able to manage their costs? Well, same with uh, uh, with our national carrier, Canada. They keep uh, things tight and bring pilots in. Uh, we had to wait for a couple of pilots to come in from Quebec City, but they got us here. And uh, that is the main thing. And the, the uh, gentleman who uh, took me home in the cab last night uh, telling me that tourism's up a little or tourism's doing pretty well this summer that was what I saw in uh, July when I was here in June when I was here um, and that's great and a little bit of humidity my goodness when I woke up this morning a little bit of humidity that was nice not the oppressive heat we've uh, been dealing with uh, up on the mainland and elsewhere gotta tell you though um, I have to laugh although it's a very important thing. Our news, of course, this morning is leading with the Building Safer Communities Fund and how we're going to get $1.8 million from that national fund. Uh, the city's going to get that today, and it's about the development of crime and violence prevention strategy and all that super important. But boy, did I get a lesson on that this morning. Got in my mom's car to come out here to drive out here, and lo and behold, the car had been rifled through. Her, uh, all of her... All of her um, uh, stuff thrown all over the place people looking for money and change now you might say why doesn't she lock her car well because this happens all the time and the one or two times that she has locked the car the windows get smashed out so it's kind of like a game but it's real uh according to the police on the different times that we've bothered to report it because it happens so much it tends to be people looking for change or looking for uh looking for something they could trade uh, uh, to uh, to buy what they need be it drugs alcohol food anyway this happens all the time we're i won't tell you where we are though some people know because last time it was on this show last summer somebody came up to my mother's house looking for me so don't necessarily want that to happen today uh but uh yeah crime it's real what do you think about this 1.8 million gonna do anything this petty crime stuff people don't bother to report it anymore because it's so common but you've got some stories or some ideas about how that 1.8 million can be spent let me know because that also links to what Jerry Lynn and I were talking about this morning on the Ottawa report and this is pretty acute in a lot of places around the province do you know we have a 17 percent vacancy rate in the RCMP 
in Newfoundland and Labrador, meaning 17% of the positions in uh, the province are uh, are not staffed. Um, that's not insignificant. That's a little, almost two in 10 positions not staffed. That creates vulnerabilities in different places. Maybe we need more uh, going into the RCMP. Maybe we have to look the way we're looking at policing. I know if you're on Fogo Island, that is something that's very important to you and other places around the province it's fascinating you want to have a look at that story again sticking on this crime theme it's on the uh, cbc website the the commissioner of the rcmp toured around saskatchewan and he took the cbc with him a couple of weeks ago and you know we had that saskatchewan has many uh, rural communities like we do and some of the service challenges they had and detachments closing up boy it's uh, it's it's concerning um it's tough to get people to join law enforcement it's tough to get people to join the RCMP today, uh, but we need policing services. We also need to look at how we do them. Anyway, have a look at that. And again, if you're out on Fogo or somewhere else, you want to give us a call about that, please do. I'd love to get your take on it because <laughs> living a little bit of crime, no punishment for anybody, I suspect, this morning. Uh, but uh, want to hear from you on all of that. Now, in the bag of potpourri here how about memorial university well as you know self-confessed i'm on the just recently uh, joined the board of regents um but there are some elections going on right now for the alumni seats on the board of regents six positions the elections conclude tomorrow august 22nd uh, there are over 40 plus people running if you're an alumnus uh, of memorial university and you haven't voted i would encourage you to vote have a look there's a great list of candidates there, all well-meaning well-intended wanting to make a contribution to the university certainly the university as we know has been in the news for the last number of years lots of challenges and opportunities opportunity with the university um, here's your chance to be heard by uh, selecting a candidate speaking to the candidates I imagine all of them are pretty approachable uh, you want to do that please do it it's so important right now if you have been part and parcel of the university community um, and are alumni and are able to vote because you are if you've gone there you should have gotten a voting number then then vote um, I think we're able to take some candidates here, if they want to give a call and talk about their particular perspectives, I will be as um, uh, respectful and uh, and uh, fair as I can be, given my role and the fact that I also am uh, on the board and uh, want to uh, not disadvantage anybody, and also have to be careful about how I manage a conversation with an incoming potential income uh, potential candidate. But if people want to talk or people want to talk about that issue, talk about these elections, please do. I think the the awareness of them is really important. It's a great time for people uh, who care about the university, and I think that's just about everybody in this province, whether you are uh, an alumni or not, uh, to participate and share their thoughts on the eve of the election closing. Uh, if I recall correctly, September 1st is the date that the results will be known on or thereabouts on September 1st. So. Kudos again to these 40-plus people, and kudos to you if you voted. And if you haven't, get out there and vote. Use that number. 
that's uh, that's an important issue. Hip and knees, how about those? Um, <laughs> as uh, somebody who's had four knee surgeries, but not knock on wood, and I'm knocking on my head here, in uh, need of a replacement yet, hopefully never will. Uh, if you're in the hip and knee line here in the province, why don't you give us a call? Because according to the PC opposition, uh, Paul Din, he says that we have not, um, or the government being the we in this case, the we, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, have not made a dent on reducing the surgical backlog of hips and knees, and they said they would. We're going to try and talk to Tom Osborne to get his perspective on that today. But if you're in that line, or you've been in that line, or know somebody in that line and want to inject your perspective on all of this, please do so. Uh, I know it can be a really frustrating experience, particularly if you're still able-bodied, but you need the work done. And because you're considered able-bodied, meaning you're generally young, enough or you're not uh, fully debilitated that uh, that it can be really uh, agonizing to be told you have to wait a couple of years to get this done. I want to get some firsthand perspectives on this today so if there are people out there who want to call about this please do. It's so um, important to get a personal sense of how we're doing on health care because of course there was lots of fanfare in the winter uh, when the provinces and the federal government announced a significant injection. I was 45 plus billion dollars, believe it was, into health care services and provision. Um, one of the things that most provinces were going to tackle was surgical wait times and backlogs. Let's see um, where the money's meeting the OR table and how it's doing. So you got personal perspectives on all of that. Give us a call. Uh, love, love to know um, what what has happened. I have to tell you, my family experience with this was my mother was in a very difficult state with her her hip. Um, she was able to get it replaced, but she uh, was in such a state of medical discomfort that um, uh, that that she was able to get in perhaps more quickly than others. But I'm not suggesting you um, change your state of wellness. But uh, certainly for her, she was able to get in and she was treated exceptionally well so uh, i've seen examples of the positive too and all of that working well now you may have heard the little teaser this morning uh, housing 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 federal cabinet meeting in pei this week they say uh that being the federal government heading into this that their focus of this meeting among all other things the top priority is going to be addressing the housing crisis in Canada the figure that is floating about is that we need about 5.8 million homes by 2030 in Canada whether you agree with it or you don't we have a human right to shelter to have a home um, we are arguably not fulfilling that right with these housing vacancies. There will be all manner of um, 
informed experts speaking to the cabinet this week about what needs to be done. Of course, it's not just one government that's responsible for this, as we all know. It's all three levels of government who play different roles here, from injecting cash to providing land uh, to providing um, regulatory the regulatory environment for all of this to be built. Um, we're going to have a guest on later, Dr. Mike Moffat from the Place Center uh, with the Smart Pur- Prosperity Institute. Mike's written a lot about this. He is calling for a um, wartime effort to get this done. The comparison, of course, and many of us are too young to relate to that, but others will know. Uh, you've read your history. You know what it means. During the Second World War, we did uh, did incredible things, uh, building things, getting things ready. Industrial strategies were all focused on, uh, on achieving very specific outcomes. And in this case, Mike Moffat, Dr. Mike Moffat, formerly of Western University, or currently of Western University, I should say, is saying, let's get this done on the housing front. We're going to dig into all of this with with Mike and some of his suggestions. Certainly for advocates that are out there, people that are out there looking for homes, love your perspective on it. Love your firsthand knowledge about what challenges you think need to be addressed. I remember um, not that long ago talking to a gentleman on this program when Patty was previously away uh, who, who was being, um, I don't know if he was being evicted, but he was asked to leave his home. He didn't have shelter. He was trying to find it. He found that it was difficult to get home, to get a home, to get an apartment, uh, because the, the, the supply and demand was such that there was too much demand and not enough supply. Um, the other side of this, if you're a builder, uh, if you're somebody in this business, how do you feel about what is likely going to be a significant change in the way we address uh, the markets as it comes to housing. Uh, this this is a huge issue. It's not going away. You have all of the major federal political parties falling over each other. Again, they did in the 2021 election saying, we got to fix this. We got to fix this. We need to address this. But is any of that believable, uh, given what we have seen in terms of the time lags and the challenges that uh, exist to building housing? Is housing the new health, meaning we'll need, as some are suggesting, a massive accord. But again, if you're in the hip and knee line and you need a house, boy, how are you feeling about all of this? Anyway, all uh, to be discussed today, your perspective we most certainly want. Now, just before we go to break at about a minute and a half or two things, I don't know if uh, you were watching as I was the uh, the World Cup, uh, the Women's World Cup. Um, it was awesome. Uh, Spain, of course, won. They beat England. Uh, Australia lost in the bronze medal game to Sweden. Uh, some fantastic soccer, football. We've talked to different fans and players over the course of the tournament. Uh, what a great showcase of sport, never mind female sport and I hope as somebody who's involved in sport it's inspired people Uh, we saw so much good so much wonderful football so much uh, engagement from the crowd Uh, I hope it was a raging success I did see a story that FIFA said they're going to break even on it uh, almost setting up the excuse that they can't deal with equity because of course they didn't make the money that they do in the men's world cup Uh, to hell with that we got to find a way to make it equitable 
because we want to create and have real aspirational opportunities for our young athletes and our young soccer players. You want to call about that? You want to give your thoughts? Uh, please do. Uh, kudos to uh, TSN for uh, showcasing a, the uh, the tournament. It was uh, was excellent. They did a, a fantastic job. Uh, my son and I watched it yesterday morning, and it was uh, outstanding. Too bad I was cheering for England. Not that I've got anything against Spain, but you know what? School in England. I like England. Anyway, it was awesome. Now, before we go to break, got to tell you, if I sound a little tired this morning, it isn't because of the travel. It was my boy's eighth birthday on Saturday, and it was a time. We had 20-odd kids in a gym running around going mad. Then we had a piñata whacking where I got to hold the piñata. If you look at Twitter there, some of you might have liked to whack me in the head. I can't believe where the years have gone by. What a blast. Nothing like a kid's birthday party to get you fired up and remember what's good, what's important, and what matters. And that's what has got me so inspired. Anyway, I'm going to get fired if I don't go to break in a moment. Now, reminder, you can get me on at Powers Tim on Twitter or openline.vocm.com. We're going to take a break, our first break of the day, then back with all of your calls here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. We're wide open here this morning on the Open Line, the biggest conversation in the province. Maybe I have to call Tom Babcock. Babcock. I got to tell you about that. That was fun. Uh, first of all, Tom Babcock uh, is a first-class fellow at the Hub, and uh, you may have seen we had a little back and forth in the uh, in uh, the Telegram. Tom was saying I wasn't uh, hard enough on Prime Minister Trudeau when he called, and that it was a uh, uh, I was conscious of, of uh, other things I do in my life, and that was impacting what I was doing. And I wrote and said, well, no, no, that wasn't the case, and it, it wasn't. We uh, had had, had uh, previously uh, talked um, to uh, – Trudeau had previously been talked about and talked with on any number of different issues uh, as it related to his prime ministership. Uh, many of those questions have been posed time and time again, the ones Tom had suggested. So I went with the one specific to Newfoundland and Labrador. But I, you know what? And I respect Tom's right to have an opinion. And I was going to say, if you have an opinion, don't like what I'm doing, what Patty's doing, what anybody's doing, just call us. Oh, look, speaking of calls, we got the first call coming up there now. Well, Dave puts that in. I got to read you this. Now, Bob LeMessure, a lot of people know him. I think they call him the poet of, of the morning show on the other network. I love Bob. Anyway, he wrote me this little poem this morning. It says, an ode to Mun in order now, considering what's transpired, I low, it needs a boost as home to roost. It fouled its nest big time and how. Well, Bob has a clear view. If you have a view, give me a call uh, as we wait for the current caller to uh, to get on board here. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, back uh, back to Trudeau and the Trudeau interview. It was uh, it, it, look. I, I think what was important in that discussion was getting out where things stood with the Atlantic Fuel Service Church. And that issue uh, was one I wanted to spend the time on, and I did, and I explained that to Tom. And you know what? The best thing about the conversation with Tom, which I respect, was it was a good back and forth. 
and we uh, really had uh, a fine, thoughtful dialogue. You got none of that on the air, but uh, we we did it off air, and I'd love to have all of those things uh, happen on the air. That's why we are waiting for you to give us a call this morning. Look, even David Coletto turned me down this morning. He turned me down because we were going to talk about a new poll that we have put out, which I'd love to get your take on. What is it? Well, we have asked, and I thought it was kind of creative, whether Pierre Polyev is like a pit bull or a golden retriever, trying to get people to think in in different terms and not to be disrespectful to uh, Mr. Polyev or uh, anybody else, just a little creative way of doing it. And and, and of course, that was done in the vein of looking at the um, new commercials that Mr. Polyev has launched. If you've watched any sports in the last number of days, you've seen the Pierre Polyev ads with his uh, uh, wife and, and others talking about who he is as a person. And it's quite fascinating. This creates some interesting electoral math or electoral opportunities which will connect to the electoral math and that is that Mr. Polyev among his uh, fans is well liked uh, among conservatives among millennials which is fascinating millennial voters are moving right now towards the conservatives they see him as a bit of a golden retriever the animal you like the loyal dog the friendly dog the and again I'm not calling Mr. Polyev a dog per se, but uh, the the golden retriever, well-renowned. Whereas his opponents, and interesting, people over 60, there's a real flip going on. People over 60 view Mr. Polyev as a bit of a pit bull. Um, Those who've seen him in politics for 20 years think that he is aggressive, negative, and uh, anyway, I would encourage you to have a look at that because as much as the liberal fortunes are waning in national polls and there's a massive current for change, there is equally a large number of people who are still uncertain about Mr. Uh, Mr. Polyev. He knows that. That's why they're spending the money that they're spending to um, try and have him defined uh, in a manner which is more favorable to voters as they cast their first look upon him. Another story related to all of this today uh, in the Globe and Mail, God forbid I'm citing the Globe and Mail, but hey, it's a national paper of, of some repute. It shows that um, uh, it, it is argued whether or not Mr. Trudeau will actually stay for um, for for the next six years. Now, why six? Two years probably until an election, and uh, then another four uh, through that particular period of time uh, in a mandate. If it's a normal four-year mandate, if it's not a minority mandate, if it's not a mandate... Um, that has an agreement like the current one does. You will have seen going into this caucus meeting in PEI um, the unknown liberals popping up saying that uh, maybe Trudeau should go. Uh, Some are saying, can you really contemplate him being here for six years? 
Anyway, there you go. All manner of things to talk about. And now I'm going to talk to a human being. I like talking to this guy. I'm going to talk to Colin, speaking of leadership races, the Republican leadership race in the United States, where Donald Trump is not going to do any debates. Colin, are you there? Good morning, Mr. Powers. How are you this morning? I am good. What do you make of all of that? Hey, eh? Donald Trump is not. That's probably a good thing because we'll spare ourselves some some silly stuff. But no, uh, no debates for Donald Trump. What do you think of that? Well, why would you debate when you're already up at about 62 percent in the uh, <laughs> latest poll and your nearest competitor, Minimaga, is at 16 percent? Minimaga. I like that. Yeah, it's it's crazy, man. Like, I, I mean, you're a smart guy. You reflect on world affairs a lot. When you look at all of this, what what are you left thinking about? There are a lot of people in the United States, and not only the United States, a lot of countries, there's a surge in the far right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have Marine Le Pen in yep, France, France and uh, and uh, Maloney in Italy. So it's, you know, it's not unique to the United States, but the United States is on our border. Whatever they do affects us economically, politically, you know, so we just can't, uh, we just can't divorce ourselves from, from their politics. But... The question becomes, like, all the stuff that's coming down about Trump, all these indictments, and, of course, he is presumed innocent. He has a right to yes, a trial yep, and, yep. And, and all the due process under the U.S. Constitution. But you're you're facing the prospect of a man who's going to be a federal inmate mm-hmm. at a United States federal penitentiary, and maybe even a state penitentiary. In Georgia, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and or New York, because mm-hmm. uh, he's facing state prosecution there, too. Um it's just the logistics of how are you going to run a government if you're in its in the federal penitentiary. You know, <laughs> it's almost like. Do you remember you 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 do? I'm sure 24. It's wasn't there a president that was in jail there? I mean, it's it's it, it would be comical if it weren't so serious. Absolutely, it, it's very serious. And you know, these people, the originalists who look at the U.S. Constitution and interpret it like you know, like take the evangelical approach to the United States Constitution, word for word. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not in there, if it's not in black and white, then it doesn't exist. It's got to be there. Uh, you know, your right to carry a gun, the well-regulated militia, well, you know, that, that's been interpreted. Everybody has a right to carry a gun. That's not what the Constitution meant when it was ratified in 1780, you know, uh, no. 1789 or whenever it was. Yeah, I think uh, the Redcoats have left the United uh, have left the yeah. United States, haven't they? Yeah, it? that's right. You know, they were chasing each other around with uh, with muskets. You know, you settle land disputes with uh, with a duel with a duel at uh, ten paces. This is how they settle things in the United States. You had the uh, uh, a former vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, shot and killed at, uh Alexander Hamilton in a duel yeah, in New Jersey in the round, I think it was 1802, you know? And so this is how things were, but uh, you have these originalists down there saying, well, there's nothing in the United States Constitution that says a convicted criminal can't be president. Would you want a serial killer to be your president? Well, but but you have to be a, a natural-born American, correct, to yeah. run for yeah. office. But yes, you, you could be a natural-born yep. American who's a criminal and be the president of the United States. I mean, I guess, yes, you get, you know, second chances and all these things. But, oh, my goodness. I mean, 
how do we here's a simple question Colin and with a minute and a half to go how do we change people's perspective on the way they look at politics and and the rationale around how they could ever consider electing somebody like Trump I don't know yeah I, I'm just scratching my head. It's uh, it's misinformation and disinformation. Trump has taken this. Every indictment that he's getting now, he's raising more money, and he's leaving all the other competitors in the dust. With the exception of uh, DeSantis, I call him de minimis. Um, they're all holding under ten percent. They're all at five six percent. So they're going to run out of money. They're going to drop out eventually because they're not going to be able to sustain their campaigns financially. It's going to be Trump and DeSantis, and he might even drop out. And it's just misinformation and disinformation. And people, there's no critical thinking, whether it's on the COVID. Uh, you know, this man, just, just on the, how he handled COVID alone in, the, in his final year of, of, of presidency, by the time he left office, 520,000 people died. That's the population of Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah. You know, just just that one issue alone, a public health emergency, a national security emergency. He was told by his top officials that this is a, a major national security threat to the United States. And within hours after hearing that in, in top secret meetings, he's out in public saying this is going to be gone by Easter. Well, come on, Colin. You know it was a conspiracy, the World Economic Forum. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, it's all, the, it's all the global, you know, uh, bony-assed liberal elites, all the woke. <laughs> you know, the only thing woke about me is I woke at 6 o'clock this morning. <laughs> yeah, me and you both. Anyway, I got to leave it there. Good to talk to you. Uh, we'll watch this. This is terrifyingly uh, fascinating in the United States. Car crash after car crash after car crash. Good to talk to you this morning, Colin. People are loving it. They're rubbernecking. They're loving it, right? Yeah, they are, unfortunately. All right. Talk to you later. Good to talk with you. Cheers. Cheers. All right. That was Colin. Now, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Dr. Mike Moffitt uh, from uh, the Smart Prosperity Institute, the Place Center, going to talk about housing. Mike is going to the federal cabinet meetings in PEI this week. He is going to brief the federal cabinet on uh, some of the work and thinking smart prosperity and uh, his peers and colleagues have done on what we as Canadians need to do and what they as a government need to do to address the housing crisis. Back with Dr. Mike Moffat after the break here on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to Open Line. Now, as promised, going to go to Dr. Mike Moffat. Mike is the Senior Director of Policy Innovation at the at Smart Prosperity. Uh, he is also a prof at Western University and one of the authors uh, of a, the report, A National Housing Accord, A Multi-Sector Approach to Ending Canada's rental housing crisis, and he and some of his co-authors will be briefing the federal cabinet this week on on housing, on the housing crisis. We've got uh, Mike. Uh, happy to have you, Mike. How are you this morning? Uh, doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, I have been hearing you everywhere, which is great. Um, your maleficent tones have been always inspiring to me, Mike. But I, I heard you um, speak uh, very uh, forcefully uh, about the challenges we're having with housing in this country. You have a, an editorial in on the Hub uh, media site today talking about how we need a wartime effort to address the housing crisis in Canada. Uh, um, maybe t why don't we start with how bad is it, Mike? 
It's uh, it is a crisis. Uh, there's no other way of putting it that uh, rents and uh, prices uh, across the country are uh, simply unaffordable. Uh, you know, there was uh, hope that as interest rates went up, that would cool off the market. But all it's really done is uh, cause payments to increase. So we need to get a lot more housing supply built. Now, fortunately, this is not the first housing crisis mm-hmm. we've had in Canada. Uh, you know, we had one at the end of World War II with all the returning vets coming home. We had one in the 1960s, late 1960s uh, when immigration targets went up and the first wave of baby boomers left their parents' home. So at least we have somewhat of a playbook that we can go back and look on. But this is this is absolutely a crisis. There's no other term for it. And Mike, I, I guess it's important, though. It really doesn't matter. But some people will be looking to affix political blame. So how did we get here? Well, I, I think the, the largest cause of it is, uh, is, is a disconnect between population growth and housing supply. But basically, our population surged over the last few years, and we haven't really built more and more housing. And there's issues with both. And it shows a, a lack of, of coordination uh, between different orders of government. That here in Ontario, for instance, the, our number one driver of population growth is actually international students, mm-hmm. uh, surprisingly enough. Well, nobody really owns that file. Uh, you know, higher education is a provincial uh, in pervert, provincial jurisdiction, but the uh, the higher education institutes themselves decide what their own enrollments are, and the federal government issues student visas. So it's, it's one thing where all three of these actors can kind of point fingers at each other, and nobody uh, nobody actually does anything about it. Yeah, it's interesting here in Newfoundland and Labrador, again, won't surprise you, uh, Memorial brings in a lot of international students, and they're usually, their housing is okay for the first year, but equally, it's the same problem. There aren't uh, places and spaces for them to go and live in after the first year or after the dorm space, the time in dormitories are done. Uh, so it's not just an Ontario problem, as, as, as you well know. So uh, how do we, you know, I, I've seen the number 5.8 million homes need to be built by 2030 how in the name of god do we do that mike uh, so there's, there's basically six different uh, problems that we have to solve at the same time the first one being that lack of coordination between different orders of governments the higher education sector builders and so on Another one is just the sheer ability uh, to build homes. You know, you run into a labor constraint really quickly. Uh, So we need to have uh, a workforce strategy on bringing in skilled trade workers and others. Um, And that's both domestic training and and using the immigration system to, to fill in any holes that are left. Another big one is viability, that uh, we have a lot of great projects out there, but they're just not economically viable. But they could be. They could be if we uh, remove the HST on uh, building new purpose-built rental. They could be if uh, we reintroduce some of the tax credits that we used Mm -hmm. in the 1960s to build apartment buildings. So we can, again, look to the past and go, okay, what did we do in, in previous times when there was a housing crisis? What could we bring back today? Because we have a lot of stuff that worked in the past, and I'm pretty confident it would work today if we uh, reintroduced it. 
Yeah, I, I've heard, as you have, every major political leader give lip service to this, and I don't want to diminish their potential commitment to it, but uh, everybody says housing is a crisis. Housing needs to get dealt with. Do you, do you feel the political will exists within the public to make this happen? Because as you and I both know, it is that public opinion that will drive leaders ultimately, despite whatever altruism they have, to get policies up and running. I, I do, and I, and I think it's changed just quite uh, recently that I think we saw the Prime Minister's remarks in Hamilton, Ontario, about uh, you know housing not quite being in the federal jurisdiction, got a lot of blowback. Uh, the pollster David Coletto has some really interesting data about uh, uh, polling on millennials, so basically people under 40. Right now, the uh, Conservatives are mm-hmm. winning the cohort, and there's been a 17-point swing between the Conservatives, the federal Conservatives and the Liberals uh, in the cohort that has their number one issue as, as housing. So I do think there is this appetite for, for federal change. Obviously, it's not completely driven by housing, but there's, I don't see how the federal Liberals can win the next election if they don't win Millennials. Um, and again, they've, they've had a 17-point mm-hmm. uh, swap since uh, 2021. And as you know, that's how they won in, in 2015. I think I know that guy, David Coletto. As you know, I'm managing director at Abacus. So thank you for citing our data, Mike. Um, and I didn't ask you to do that. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> You talk about, you, know, you alluded to it a moment ago, like, how do we get the speed in this? How, you know, 2030 isn't that far away. Uh, 5.8 million is a ton of homes. Um, this is going to take tripartite effort. How, how do you get that speed to get this done? And that's probably the biggest issue. And there's some things that we could do. So right now, there are thousands of apartment building applications sitting at the Canadian Morgan Housing Corporation. Uh, waiting for insurance uh, on a program called MLI Select. Mm -hmm. Uh, The backlog there is 8 to 12 months. This is really reminiscent of the uh, passport fiasco from uh, from earlier this year. And, you know, the federal government staffed up that department, started getting those applications through. They need to do the same thing here, where we have these great projects out there uh, developers and builders want to get shovels in the ground, but they're just being held up uh, by the CMHC. And that's, just, that's not just a federal issue. Obviously, there are provincial and municipal approvals processes that, that need to get fixed. But that would be a big one that would really start to get some the housing starts up. Uh, two last questions for you, because I know you're busy and you got to get to PEI. Um, what, what do you want to leave Cabinet with and see Cabinet do after you've had the opportunity to speak with them, you'll have Tim Richter there, who I know, and, and, and other partners uh, who, you were, who were part and parcel with you in, in pulling together this National Housing Accord document. What, what do you hope to hear and see from Cabinet? Well, there's a few things. So, so first, uh, I, I want an all-of-Cabinet effort because there's a lot that, that goes into it. So we need, uh, we need to increase our productivity. We need new technology. So that's, you know, that's the form the, the industry minister. We need housing. Uh, my, my, my cousin's uh, trying in the uh, Canadian Forces trying mm-hmm. to get housing for his family. He can't. So that's, you know, that's the defense minister's area. So all of these ministers need to work together, first of all. Secondly, that they need to focus on speed. They cannot micromanage this process. 
So, for instance, they need to get more money to municipalities for housing infrastructure. If they go through a big process where they're starting to approve or not approve every single project, we won't get there. They need they need to design things that you know trust uh, municipalities to do to do the right thing. So that's the that's the big thing I want to leave leave with. First of all, this should be an all-of-cabinet effort, and second, it has to be about speed, 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 which means you cannot micromanage this process. Last question. I guess this is one that, for me, I, I hadn't given it the consideration, but again, I saw you writing about this, and you know, good on you. I think you have a lot of people thinking about uh, the importance of housing and the right of housing and the questions about the right of housing. I mean, we adapted the U- United Nations uh, Human Rights Decula- uh, Declaration uh, many decades ago, and one of the rights is a right to housing. Are we fulfilling the right to housing? Do people Are people able to to actualize that in this country? No, uh, we're not. I don't think anybody believes we are. We just look at the uh, tent cities all across uh, all across Canada. It used to be you might have seen that in, in Toronto and Vancouver, but uh, you know we're seeing that in small towns mm-hmm. across southwestern Ontario. So when you start seeing uh, tent cities in places like Woodstock and Tilsonburg. I think that's a big sign saying we are not fulfilling uh, our obli- our human rights obligations when it comes to housing. And we've had uh, we've had people living on soccer fields here in St. John's in the past because they couldn't also find homes. It's uh, it, it truly is a national problem. Uh, Mike, good luck in PEI. Good luck to your peers. Uh, we'll keep watching us and thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right. That was uh, Dr. Mike Moffat from the Smart Prosperity Institute, who will be appearing at the federal cabinet this week talking about the housing crisis. All right. Dave, when we come back, you will be the first caller and then Paul in. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. I'm going to go right to Dave Callahan on line one. Dave, how are you? Good morning, Tim. How are you? Well, by, you know, technology, when I do it in Ottawa, I don't have to push as many buttons. I'm having a few troubles with the buttons here this morning, but other than that, I'm good. How about you, Dave? Not bad at all. Just not long done looking at a picture of a fine young fellow turning eight years old. <laughs> very, very trustworthy dad holding a pinata as he swings back. I have to tell you, and nobody got me in the hand, and I'm sure they wanted to hit me, but, uh, yeah, that was a good day. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Those are the moments in life that you'll remember a long time. Oh, yeah, it was, uh, it was an awesome day, and uh, everybody had a lot of fun. And I'll tell you, we all slept well that night after running around with eight-year-olds all, uh, all after. Chasing eight-year-olds <laughs> and all that fresh air definitely makes for a good nap. It does, it does indeed. <laughs> so tell me, energy projects on the West Coast, what's, uh, what specifically is on your mind? Well, it seems to me that there's more activity and uh, it, it probably that a lot of the uh, legislation and, and the regulatory work has been, uh, I guess, culminated or mm-hmm. getting close to that point. And uh, it, it's a very welcome sight for me uh, and I guess a lot of people. Um, and we hope that it becomes exactly everything that it should be for our region and that uh, we, we see the benefit in everything that uh, we would expect to. And I guess the reason that we're looking at green energy projects now, especially in Newfoundland, uh, is because it won't be a lot longer before our ability to mainstay our province through oil revenue and oil activity um, revenue will be basically, I guess, uh, 
tossed aside because the federal government has a demand that between 2024 and 2035, we start to phase out such things as oil exploration, drilling, drilling and spudding wells. And I mean, it's more than Newfoundland that that affects, of course. I mean, any of the oil producing provinces such as Alberta, New Brunswick, they all have the same, I guess, mandate. I don't know if it's an agreed mm-hmm. mandate, but the same task. And we just seen pushback by Daniel Smith from Alberta. Mm-hmm. And I, over the weekend, I, I looked at a, a bunch of different things, and I guess what alarms me the most is there's such a talk of separation now. It's increased by Albertans. And I listened to Daniel Smith, and I said, because I really didn't know a lot about her, but I was really impressed with the way she spoke and the way she backed up Alberta's position behind the pushback that she's currently, I guess, basically trying to to, to force mm-hmm. upon the federal government to realize that you're pushing us too far. You're, you're Canada has a mandate by 2035. I mean, China has said they're not looking at anything in terms of uh, being uh, anywhere near as far along until 2060 when it comes to the reduction in the use of fossil fuels. India has projected 2070. Canada is going with 2035. We've got some dangerous people that have, have basically... Uh, they're going to mandate provinces in, into poverty, Alberta, Newfoundland, New Brunswick, and others. But it's not even just the ones that produce oil. Anybody using oil now as fossil fuel to, uh, to, to power electrical generation, such as the four provinces that are most affected by it now, I think New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Alberta, mm-hmm. whatever. And these things are like plans that pop into our Minister of Environment's head or our Premier's head or I mean Christa Freeland has said that she's okay with $8 a gallon gas to remind Canadians of climate change. Well, I don't need to be broken at the pumps to be reminded that we're trying to attain climate change and Christa Freeland who walks around Toronto or takes the subway has got a totally out of touch non-intellectual view of the rest of Canada and how we could basically absorb these changes. And I just, I think that we're headed down a slippery slope, Tim. Well, and you see it in the polling, right, Dave? Uh, you you see this tension uh, that that's there. Uh, you're seeing it in Atlantic Canada. You talk about the by-election, recent provincial by-election in Nova Scotia, yep. uh, where the cost of gas um, and the impact of carbon pricing was felt very acutely by people. I, I, I think there's a very deliberate political calculation on being made both by the Liberals and the Conservatives here. Conservatives focusing on affordability, and that's fair enough because that's the pain people are feeling. You've talked about it well. The Liberals just solely focused on, all right, we got to drive people to this point of climate change um, and being aggressive in our policies. This is going to be our legacy. And hopefully in a year or two, by the time there's an election, people will see the wisdom of all of this. The danger of the two polarities is common sense and maybe reasonable accommodation, God forbid using that phrase, but look at the Atlantic fuel charges, a good example of that can't be found. Regional variances need to be considered. Anyway, uh, there's going to be a lot more to be talked about on this. Dave, i got to give you about 30 seconds because i got to get two more calls and anything else you'd like to add. 
Well, just the fact that Canadians are being broke by all of these carbon taxes and all of the inf inflationary effects of the same. I mean, if you look at how much government is actually showing it cares, look at what they've done to the price of home heating fuels. Yeah. I mean, if anything should be protected, it should be home heating fuels. Mm -hmm. But they follow along with the increases just the same as they do at the pumps. And it's because we've got a government that's got a goal with no plan, and they're out of touch. And, and it's just time they got to go. All right. Good to talk to you, Dave. Thanks for waiting. Talk again soon. Take Thank care. Thank you, Jim. Take care, buddy. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, going to go to Paul Din. Paul is the MHA for Topsail Court. Oh, okay. I'm I'm being bossed around here. That's all right. We're putting Paul on hold. Uh, <laughs> that's what Dave, my Dave, is supposed to do. We're going to go to Brad. Brad Carp uh, from the K Wake Up on 96.3 in Kelowna. Uh, of course, everybody here in Newfoundland and Labrador is uh, watching, listening uh, to the stories of the terrible wildfires in Kelowna. Uh, Brad, how are things up there right now? Well, Tim, the last 24, 48 hours have been, all things considered, pretty good. Uh, the weather has cooled down. The wind has died, more or less, and that was really what sent things ablaze on Thursday and Friday when you saw those incredible mm -hmm. videos of, of people jumping in the lake, of the fire moving, you know, <laughs> it jumped a two-and-a-half-foot lake as well. Uh, uh, the images that we saw, that you saw, that, that we lived through on Thursday and Friday were horrible, but that hasn't been the case, thankfully. Um, really, since late Friday night, things started to calm down then. Uh, officials have said that they haven't lost any more homes or structures since uh, probably Friday. Uh, they did allow some people to go back into their homes yesterday in the university area near the airport. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, we have been on a march towards progress, and things have been looking up the last little bit here. Brad, it's astounding to me. I was in Vancouver last uh, Sunday for a memorial service for somebody you probably knew of from Kelowna, Pat Aldis, who used, who had uh, uh, owned Okanagan helicopters, and there were a whack of people from Kelowna who were in Vancouver last, um, uh, last Sunday for this service. And then I get back, and then lo and behold, this fire just comes out of nowhere. I mean, some of this has been covered already. But, you know, how did this start? Were there, was there anything that could have been done from a preventive perspective? You know what? It, the way that there are a couple of things. It was kind of a perfect storm. And when these things blow up yeah. like this near, near a residential area, that, that tends to be the case. I lived through the, the wildfire in Fort McMurray in mm -hmm. 2016, uh, and it was a perfect storm then. And it, we're seeing record-level drought here in the B.C. interior. We had a week of 35-plus degree heat. And then the winds picked up, and we had winds blowing at 60, 70 kilometers an hour and blowing the fire right towards town. So uh, when all of those things combine, it makes it really tough to do anything. Um, we were just kind of sitting ducks, unfortunately. Um, right. I mean, you, you still need to get things under more control, but what, what yeah. does rebuilding look like and how can the people of Newfoundland and Labrador help? We have uh, received help from many others when we have been subject to, to climate emergencies. What, is, what does rebuilding look like? How can we help? Well, we appreciate the offers for help, and uh, myself, like every other person in Kelowna, I think has, has gotten uh, an offer of a bedroom in every corner of this country, which is just so fantastic. Um, 
we appreciate that. And the easiest thing you can do, the Red Cross has set up a BC Fires Appeal. Kelowna isn't the only one going through this yes, right now. No, the Shuswap no. region, mm-hmm. just about an hour and a half north of us, they got absolutely hammered on Friday night. What we had Thursday, they had Friday. Um, so the money is going to go to that. And, and like I said, I lived through it in Fort McMurray in 2016, and the Red Cross was amazing. They were so good. They had uh, re-entry kits for everybody. They had money for everybody. They had money for clothes. They had toys for kids. Uh, they do an incredible job on the ground in making sure that evacuees and those who lost their homes are supported both when they're out and then when they start to go back in with cleanup kits and making sure they understand you know, what they can do, what their rights and rules are. Uh, they're just such a fantastic organization in that way. Uh, if you want to get super local and really help out Kelowna itself, you can make a donation to the Central Okanagan Food Bank. Their website is cofoodbank.com. Uh, they've been helping evacuees, feeding them meals, making sure that they're fed. They've been helping out by feeding the, the firefighters, the first responders, the police officers. Uh, it's been a real team effort here on the ground. It's been incredible to see the support. Uh, it's 500 firefighters on the mm-hmm. ground here in the Cologne That's area fantastic. right now. From all over the province, more coming from all over the world at the moment. Uh, and, and I think part of the reason why response, not that I'm going to say it was slow, uh, but the issue is we've just had so many fires and bigger fires of note before this one blew up across BC. So resources were elsewhere and it took a bit of time for them to get here. Yeah. When I was there last week, somebody told me had over 400 fires burning at one point in the summer. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy number just before I let you go as we're up against the news here. And, uh, I know it's early and you've got a lot to do there. Uh, last question, any expectations or hope, uh, federal cabinets meeting out this way in PEI, uh, prime minister, I think was in Edmonton this week, uh, talking to uh, some of the survivors from the yellow knife fi- fire what would you like to hear in the next uh, number of days from uh, from the federal government i think i'll speak for most people in western canada at this point i think it's time for a national wildfire fighting strategy uh, this is not getting any easier the resources are stretched in on a provincial level and if there's a backup team that the country can mobilize to hot spots that are needed like a yellow knife like a Kelowna, uh, I think that would go a long way. That and, and a blank check would be nice to help the rebuild, but I don't know if that'll happen. Are you a Newfoundlander, Brad? We like blank checks as well, too. <laughs> anyway. Well, I spent five years in McMurray, so <laughs> their share. And the in-laws are Newfoundlanders, so God love you and thank you. Well, God love you. Thank you. Uh, joking aside, we're thinking of you all uh, up there. Beautiful country as well, too. It's going to take time to get better. Brad Carp from the K-Wake Up on 96.3 in Kelowna. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. Time for the news. When we come back, I think we will have Paul Din then, and we'll have Dr. Bill Montevecchio as well. Time for the news here at VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back. Tim Powers in here for Patty today. All right. As promised, after a little bit of shuffling, we have got the Shadow Minister of Health and Community Services, the MHA for Topsail Paradise, uh, Paul Din on the line. Paul, how are you? I'm doing well, Tim. And uh, look, welcome back to the Rock for, for a visit. Well, thank you. Uh, air, uh, uh, traveling here, it's never easy, but <laughs> but it, it's good to be back and, and on a beautiful uh, on a beautiful day here. At you least the weather with you. Well, I, hey, let's let's not go that far, Paul. I, I don't know about that. Now, you're um, you have come out uh, after yep. doing some work with uh, ATIP, the Access to Information, and um, said that uh, our 
Weight lists as it relates to hips and knees are still not where they should be. So where are we, Paul, with weight lists and surgeries for hips and knees in Newfoundland Labrador? Well, you know what? It's, it's always good to, uh, to get the exact figures on this, and we, we A-tip this. But I certainly get a lot of calls from people, you know, who are, uh, are waiting and waiting and waiting. So, uh, you know, I got the impression from them that, that nothing has changed. And, of course, when you look at the, uh, the actual data, uh, it really hasn't. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough piece of work to, to deal with. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, government comes out with these releases and, and, and that's, you know, becoming more frequent. And it's really not telling people what they need to know when it comes to, uh, you know, giving them some uh, some actual information on where they may be on a wait list or where when they may get in to see a doctor or get the surgery they need, you know. And, and this is an issue that uh, many reach out to me about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, they're still waiting, they're waiting, or they get delayed and delayed. And look, this is no reflection at all on the, uh, the healthcare professionals because they're doing the best they can with what they have and in the environment they're in, you know. But uh, there are cancellations, of course, because a physician or someone's not available. But when we see these announcements and, uh, you know, the minister talks to imp- going to commit to implement all 32 of these recommendations of the uh, Surgical Task Force report, and yet you have people at that same conference, you know, the Vice President of Transformation talking about the large list and, and even the, uh, the Deputy Minister of, uh, of Health Transformation, you know, actually saying that is, you know, it's not reasonable to think that these all will be implemented. So it's a mixed message for people out there. And I think people want, to, want just some, some uh, assurance that, you know, we're going to have a shorter wait list. We're going to get in sooner than we are. And then you listen to the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association who talk about, you know, it's likely the backlog has gone up. And, of course, the figures I have are only for hip and, and mm. joint. And they talk about another 144,000 people, you know, without access to a family doctor. So the figures are not jiving with the messaging that we're getting. Uh, any idea how they compare nationally? Because the reason I ask you this, if it's fitting, I was uh, when, when I was in BC last week, I was talking to a gentleman who I know uh, from Edmonton, and he is waiting for uh, a knee replacement, and very similar to what you've expressed here uh, with different health authorities, not, uh, you know, long list, not sure how it's going to be. A- any sense of, of that, Paul? Not that it makes it easier for people in a line here, but it's helpful to know what what's happening nationally and if we're all part of the same slow process of fixing the system i think it, i think it would vary between provinces and you know i've heard the minister talk about trying to hit uh, uh, certain benchmarks which gives me the impression that we're not we're not there quite yet in terms of national benchmarks but you know you really got to look at what other provinces are doing and mm-hmm. and uh, you know have a look and see what's working for them i'll give you a good example there there just last week i had a call from uh, from an 87 year old mm-hmm. woman and and she just called in and she uh, uh, she was talking about trying to get in and get surgery done. And, uh, you know, if you look at the report, it talks about the surgical patient pathway. Mm-hmm. It talks about, you know, three phases there, and pre-op being a big part of that. This this woman, uh, you know, indicated to me, you know, at that time she had to pay, uh, had three meetings with a nurse practitioner prior to being, you know, put on the list for surgery. 
and she paid $75 each time to a nurse practitioner, you know, to, to get this done. And a good diagnosis, you know, yep. they're healthcare professionals like all of us, and, yep, yep. and we need them. But her, her point being was, you know, how do other people do it? Uh, who She could afford it, but, you know, the talk was, well, how do others do it? And we, we've raised this question before about billing MCP, you know, allowing nurse practitioners to do that, either on a temporary basis, a pilot basis, or, you know, but allowing them to do that because that, that takes a load off this surgical patient pathway. By having access there, individual can get on the list sooner and, and get the surgery they're done. And, you know, she had insurance, but she said it doesn't pay for that. So that's just one example of, uh, you know, maybe it's a low-hanging fruit that we could, could take that would help ease some of the burden on the system. I don't know what the end result would be mm-hmm. in terms of, of uh, you know, decreasing the backlog by how many. But it is an option, and it seems to be, a, a, you know, a readily available option. But, but for some reason, we uh, a government hasn't taken that route to allow nurse practitioners who are operating privately to, to uh, bill MCP. And, uh, you know, stuff like that would would ease the burden. And uh, people would have, you know, people who are going around who require surgery would uh, would get that diagnosis sooner rather than later and get on that list. So there, there's there's these little bits and pieces out there that could be, uh, could be dealt with, and, and it doesn't seem to be happening. You know, and people are suffering. Yeah, people are suffering. And at the end of the day, all the key performance indicators in the world, KPIs don't matter if you're in pain. However, part of this is also being realistic, which we don't often like to be. We want to have hope and uh, enthusiasm. What should be a realistic expectation of a, of a hip or knee replacement, joint replacement patient in this province or anywhere in the country right now? That's a good question. I guess if you ask every individual person, they would have a different answer for you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, at the end of the day, I think they would like to be assessed and like to be given some uh, some uh, clear indication of when they might get in to have it done so they can plan for that. You know, because this is a mobility issue for many, mm-hmm. and it's not always seniors we're talking about. No, it's not. You know, and it takes them away from uh, being able to work and being able to participate in, in, you know, their events throughout the day. So, I mean, realistically, and like, you know, I look at the re- this report, and one of the parts of their mandate was to increase transparency, accountability, and the efficient management of surgical lists. I mean, that's right in their mandate, you know. And I think that's what people, at, at least, would want to hear: an open and uh, straightforward accounting of, okay, mm-hmm. you're on the list. Here's when you may expect to get in, or here's where you, you know, uh, you uh, may have to go to get it done, you know. And I don't think people people are just on a wait list and waiting in limbo really and uh, I think the more information you can get out there to individuals the better it would be for them and ease that anxiety that goes along with waiting on surgery and uh, and since this release went out uh, you know I had a number of calls people reminding me that it's not just the surgery wait lists out there there's other wait lists oh, yeah. and such and and you know it's really critical and uh, that we we get these uh, wait lists brought down, but that we also make sure that the individuals on those wait lists are well informed and uh, have the information they need to ensure when, when, they, when they're going to get their surgery.
Yeah, no, uh, all very true. And I, I just want to reinforce your point that uh, it's, it's not uh, the, the impairment that you can have with a lack of mobility is real. And it brings your mood down. It uh, can cause mental health and wellness challenges. It can affect the broad quality of your life, which impacts many other things. Anyway, got to leave it there, Paul. Yeah. Thanks for raising this issue. Minister Osborne, I think, is coming on around 1130. So we'll uh, follow up with him and uh, see what his take is on all of this. Appreciate your time today. And I know you, you mentioned earlier about the $2 million, uh, from uh, $27 million from the feds. It would be nice to find out wh- where that ex- actually went and where, how, how it's uh, helping. All right. I'll ask that as well. How's that for service this morning, that, Paul? That's perfect. Enjoy your stay. <laughs> all right. Take care. <laughs> Bye. All right. That was Paul Din, the, uh, the uh, Shadow Minister for Health and Community Services. Nick and Amanda, you're next after the break here on VOCM's Open Line. All right. Just before I go to Nick, uh, email here from Mike. He says, where does Paul get his 140, he's speaking about Paul Din, get his 144,000 people without a family doctor? Um, I believe that stat, I will check, Mike, um, it comes from stuff the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association put out. I heard it was well over 100,000. I will check in between breaks and let you know what the right number is or what number I can find for you at the moment. Now we'll go to Nick, who's been waiting. Nick, you want to talk about the, the debate that's been had about the location of new high school, of new high school in, the, in the province. How are you today? Good. How are you, Tim? I'm good. Uh, let her rip. What do you got? Uh, basically, I uh, just want to point out a few things that, sure. I, that I think are uh, a bit out there, really. Uh, Paradise has been in need of a high school for an awful long time. I remember, I can remember my daughter. She's now 23. Mm-hmm. This is how long now. We had to truck her to school all the way up to CBS there um, next to uh, Villanova. I think it's called Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, it's a bit out there when you got to drive, uh, drive a child that far or, you know, get around a bus really early in the morning to get them out that far. And here we got Mr. Fury down there in Portugal Cove. And I can bet my money on it that his kids will be attending this new high school where he's trying to build a new high school. And I think this is more of a perfect personal preference over anything else, just trying to help his own, you know, out more than what he's trying to help basically the general taxpayer because he's also building a church or necessary church <laughs> uh, building a hospital uh, which we really don't need right now and of course he he probably knows that next election he's probably not going to get back in because uh, a lot of stuff they're doing it just don't make sense and uh, I guess he wants a new workplace. There's only the I can figure. This is the only things I'm looking at, and it's all looking pretty relevant to, in my eyes. Well, you, you certainly got a clear opinion on, on that, uh, Nick. I, I won't speak about the school because I don't know that yeah. as, as well as you well, do. But but, uh, but can I just say on the hospital, I mean, yeah, yeah you just heard the call from Paul Din uh, about wait times. And, again, I don't know if a new hospital addresses wait times, but more surgical bays do, more physicians to do all of that. So... I appreciate you have a pretty First defined. Off, See, go ahead, Nick. Off, we got a bigger problem. We had a nursing issue. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got medically. I'll give you another example. Like I got friends of mine that are nurses, yep. and one big issue they're all running into uh, daycare. Yeah, they've daycare. Got, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to daycare because of the hours, the shift work, 
And, you know, it's basically uh, it's an endless problem that uh, all these workers got. I mean, if you've got nurses out there that can't go back to work because they can't get daycare, then uh, if you're short on nurses, how in the hell are you manning up a hospital that you're building brand new, which is going to take a lot of staff? St. Clair's is perfectly fine down there. And I've, I've been to St. Clair's, and Fury does work St. Clair's in the clinics because I had to see Fury one time. And it wasn't the best of service, but I won't go there. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Let's let's be. You clearly have a political view, which you're entitled to. Let's, be, as you said, let's be careful about his medical uh, skills. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is that building a new hospital just to have a new place to work. That's my opinion of what he's doing. We could be outfitting all these outskirts like Whitburn and all these other areas that are in need of upgrades. All these mm-hmm. outskirt hospitals, all the way out to probably Port of Bass need to be upgraded. And if you upgrade all these hospitals, we wouldn't have so much of an overload coming towards St. John's. And, well, uh, if you look at the only, the, what I push back on that is, and again, this yeah. is the, the work done by Sister Elizabeth and, and Dr. Parfrey, um, there's a bigger question about the, the total system and you know, should some of those hospitals that you've talked about continue to operate the, the way that, that they have been. I, I, I think we, we have to look at all that in, the, in that commentary. I haven't heard, um, I know I've talked to Tony Wakem, I've talked to Eugene Manning about uh, about healthcare and, and, and a lot of what they talk about is service provision and and getting the right infrastructure. Anything else, Nick? You want to add before? Uh, well, basically, uh, what I'm trying to point out is that we're in paradise. Yeah, we've got a big ton of kids up there that need to be uh, staying in our area. We shouldn't have to be trucking them out to Mount Pearl. Shouldn't have to be trucking them out to CBS for high school. This has gone on long enough. Uh, down there in uh, Portugal Cove, they've mm-hmm. only got a handful of kids. They go to, I think it's PWC, and PWC is even complaining because they'll lose the, uh, a lot of their structure in their school. They may even lose their school if uh, this happens because of uh, lack of students. Yeah, so, certainly. I mean, uh, this is this has got more, more than one effect. This is affecting a lot of communities, and I think there should be an oversight committee that's overlooking all this instead of just letting a power a government with uh, the the mandate to vote it in uh, take this over because this is just outrageous. Well, at the hospitals. Yeah, just 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 hospitals. to be fair though, whether it's a liberal government, a conservative government, or not, I mean, public tendering is public tendering, and it's getting better in terms of being removed from the political process. And the only thing I'd add about St. Clair's, because I've been there too, I've been there with my mom in the last couple of years, uh, it, and I've seen the rooms and stuff. It it, it does need work. So uh, anyway, your perspective is appreciated. Thank Thank you, Nick. Anything else you want to add quickly before I go to the next caller? Uh, no, that's about it. Uh, they just need to do something about uh, low-income housing and daycares. I mean, until they do something about all this stuff, uh, it's pointless looking at new hospitals. You won't have anybody demanded up. All right. Thank you, Nick. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. We're going to go to uh, Amanda. you got a rodent issue going on. That's not very good in your apartment building. What's happening? Yes. Um, well, I'm having a major issue since I moved in here. I'm in the center part of the city in the Newfoundland housing. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since I moved in here, not even three weeks after, I've been having mice literally all over my house. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. In my children's beds, my beds, coming home, the ah. sheets, losing food from them getting in and eating all my food in my cupboards. Um, I'm just, I'm just fed up. And this I is public it. housing, Amanda? 
This is Newfoundland Housing, Newfoundland Labrador Housing. And have you spoken to uh, whomever you deal with there to address this? And if so, what have they said? Yes, they're, they're fine me now. They're fine me now because I, I basically uh, told them I'm going on open line that they decided to, they're trying to do stuff down today to uh, try to fix the issue. The whole building, the whole, like, you know, apartment building is like... Say probably about ten, ten in one one uh, one building at a time, um, and we're all having the issue with it. Um, but I'm I've been having a major issue where I have I have small children. I can't I can't I got approved to go to Mount Pearl. I and uh, to get my transfer. I'm here now with not enough bedrooms. Mm. I have one child that can't even come over here because they don't have an adequate bedroom to be able to live in. Um, I'm trying to get my transfer. They're telling me that there's nothing available. We're sorry. And there's no air exchangers or anything in here. It's causing me to have problems with my breathing. Mm-hmm. It's having, I'm having, my children are having problems with getting headaches. Um, it's just, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal. And they're only now coming out because I'm speaking out. How, how long has this mice problem been going on then? Since, since November. And what? Are the, any idea what started it? Was there mold well, or something? They're, they're, they, they condemned the uh, basements. Okay. Now, the basements closed off in these buildings, in this building particularly. I don't know about the rest of them on my street. Um, but um, they haven't condemned, and they've just left them and closed them off and have not done anything to fix the situation. Um, I mean, I'm here, like, have separated, my, my family is separated. At the top, at yeah. right now, I, my oldest has to like stay with their father because I don't have adequate to go back and forth between us for a room for them. I mean, and like I've been waiting, I got finally got approved, and I'm still waiting, and I'm still having these issues with my health, with the situation of being on a fixed income and not being able to afford. Like I'm shelling out money left, front, and center to try to keep this place clean, trying to keep it sanitized, trying to heal them off myself to get to get this mice issue under control. There's no ear exchangers in these buildings to even give you that bit of, you know, you don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what else is in the walls here. I don't, like, you know, I mean, if there's mice sitting in, you know, you can, you can stream to what, what the inside of the walls and everything are and the ceilings and underneath me, like... Yeah, it's that's that's a horrible situation. Well, I'm glad to hear at least the um, the uh, the point by you of going on this program has sponsored uh, a bit of a response. But it shouldn't require you going on this program or anywhere else. You should be uh, have more prompt service to all of this. All right, Amanda, I got to let you go, but you keep us updated. All right, as to how all this goes and whether you and and others are getting properly looked after. Thank you for your call today. Thank you very much, sir. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. That was Amanda. That's a pretty awful situation. Can you imagine as Amanda is living through it, trying to bring kids to a house where there's mice and everything else running around? I mean, we've had mice in the house before, but uh, but not like that. And usually they're pretty much dealt with by the cats. All right. Time for a break. When we come back, Charlie's on the line. He wants to talk about uh, Mike Moffat's comments and also uh, Donald Trump. Back with you here shortly on VOCM's Open Line. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. 
All right, welcome back. Going to go to Charlie on line three. Charlie, you wanted to respond to uh, some of what Dr. Moffat said and also talk about uh, the ridiculous poll numbers for Donald Trump. Yes, good morning, Tim. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do. I'll do the insane and ridiculous first. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was a poll shown this morning mm-hmm. uh, regarding trust, and they listed. Uh, religious leaders, the media, friends and family, and Trump. 71% said that they trusted Trump more than family and friends. That's crazy. I, I, anyway, sorry, go ahead. The family and friends were in the 60s. The media was in the, in the 50 areas, and the religious leaders were in 41 now, if that's not a definition or evidence of a cult, I don't know what it could be. This, this, after all that's happened, they've had eight years to see what he's all about, and this, this is what we have. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I don't know what more to say about the man. I, I, I mean, it's just astounding to me. Remember, Bill Clinton almost was or was impeached for sexual relations in his office with a uh, an intern that not that that was appropriate yet Donald Trump can run for re-election with numerous indictments uh, the possibility of going to jail to be extremely real it's it's sad 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 anyway you and I agree on that well, Do- well, it, it's I, I will say and it's terrifying not Trump, it's the followers, but anyway. Yeah, well, yes, they enable him, exactly. All right, Dr. Moffat, what'd you think? Well, I like what he said. I like some of the measures that government could take. I have no problem with that, but uh, I guess that's what he didn't say I had problems with. Okay. I think it was generally agreed over the last decade, or longer perhaps, that foreign ownership, uh, the Chinese people, nationals coming over, and other people uh, buying up homes, some of them they didn't even live in, I think that was agreed that 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 drove our prices, especially in cities. Would you agree with that? Uh, Certainly, it's something that um, I've heard a lot about in B.C. and parts of Ontario, that uh, that that's been been a major issue. I I heard that uh, a couple of people from here were buying in PEI. They work over there. And one of the first things they said was, and I was shocked, uh, because like you, I thought it was the major centers. They said it was the same thing was happening on PEI. Now, I'm going, that's an anecdotal thing, but uh, I, I would not uh, disbelieve it, especially being, being PEI and all the attention that's got over the years. But anyway, the other one was uh, we don't look at lumber prices. And the reason for lumber prices being so high, mm-hmm. it's, that's driven up homes like you wouldn't believe, especially uh, during the pandemic and after. And I would suggest that uh, one of the reasons lumber prices are so high, not only are we starting to deal with more people uh, creating a scarcity in, in, in lumber, we're looking at, and I mentioned this last week on, on the program, we're looking at people have complete freedom in this country and apparently everywhere else. If you have the money, you can build whatever kind of a, a, a big, humongous McMansion that 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 you like. There's no restriction. Apparently, uh, as Dave said, there's a restriction on smaller homes. 
And uh, so when is the government going to tackle the waste in this industry that drives up prices, drives up lumber prices and everything else? They don't speak about it. They wouldn't touch it. The elites would uh, go crazy, as you you know. But it's a factor uh, 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 with scarce resources that should be addressed. That's my opinion. Um, Interesting perspective, although one of the things I, I see in the work that Mike has done, and this touches on this too, is the whole notion of less regulation as opposed to more. Now, I take your point about an inflamed market is, is, is causing some of the challenges here, but you know, if, if you get into the business of overly regulating lumber prices and how all of that would work and where jurisdiction fits and, and, and the like, that may slow this whole exercise of getting homes built done. I mean, if there's more building to occur uh, and there's a consistent demand for that that may sort things out in the the market uh but um but who knows i mean it, it's such a supply and demand it d- so, doesn't seem like an easy thing to do charlie and it seems no. like we need to do things that are more easily done to solve some of these problems i would agree totally but what i'm saying is we eventually have to look at the larger picture if 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 if, if you can go out and you've got a billion dollars, or you've got 500 million or a million, and you want to spend it on a humongous house for you, you, you probably and one other, or yourself, there is no restrictions on this planet and, and in government. Government would not look at it. I'm saying that's a longer-term problem. It's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's a problem in the short term as well. But we don't look at some of the underlying reasons. Yes. Affluence, affluence is, 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 is biting us in the rear in so many ways, and who talks about it? Hardly anybody, because governments don't want to get into it. They're going to be kicked out of office, right? Well, the NDP, I guess, have been talking about it. I mean, they've been talking about, as you know, attacks on the uber wealthy and that this somehow will help the economy. The the corollary to that is uh, that that tax could also drive people away, uh, have them go elsewhere, and uh, impact our ability to enhance our productivity. There's a whole bunch of different ways this, this could all all go though i have to admit the first time i've heard that the lumber pricing issue was today what i've heard about before um and mike talked about this a little bit and everybody i think has experienced this is the shortage of trades workers right and and people just to do the work it's fine to say we're going to turbocharge housing um but if we don't have enough skilled workers to do this work the supply is almost irrelevant because if you don't have the people to do the work you can have all the supply in the world you want the houses aren't going to go up well we've reached a point where we're we're middle class and 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 below that and younger people there's just uh, no way they can build and and uh, it just seems so sad but anyway yeah uh, there's a trend i heard there's a trend that condo buyers are going uh, to to uh, housing uh, smaller houses and a lot of these the people with smaller houses especially in urban areas want to buy larger houses mm-hmm. I don't know if that's uh, true across Canada or what but urbanization certainly is oh uh, we have employees in our business who are um, 
you know, of an age, late 20s, where they normally would consider buying a home or buying a condo, but they, they can't afford to do so. So they, you know, work from home and save money to do all of that, trying to buy something in an urban setting. That's also why I think Mike alluded this to this in his interview that you see millennial voters. So people in their 30s and 40s, or early 40s, I should say, I think the cutoff is 42 or whatever it is now, are uh, are turning to the conservatives because one of Polyev's messages, whether you like it or not, but he seems to be getting some traction on it, is uh, he feels their pain. He knows they want homes. They want to buy. It's unaffordable. He's going to make it affordable. Of course, we'll all see if that ever happens or not. But... Uh, but uh, it's a real challenge. Young people are in a very difficult place than you and I were when we were a little younger and, and had the opportunity to buy. I can give you about 30 seconds, Charlie, before... Well, well Polyev is great at identifying pain areas, carbon yes. tax and uh, housing and so on. As far as solutions, mm-hmm. I don't see in the carbon area that he's proposing anything that's uh, going to be effective. And I don't know about his housing plan. I haven't heard it. But uh, I, I, I suspect it's a, a lot of opposing as opposed to solutions. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. All right. Good to talk to you, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Take care. Okay. All right, we are going to take a break. Uh, we're almost up at the right, normal break time anyway. When we come back, uh, I want to talk to Justin Campbell, who's the program director for First Voice Urban Indigenous Coalition, about this police conf- police governance conference last week uh, that garnered a lot of uh, headlines, particularly as it related to um, Joe Boland's comments about, uh, about being pushed out and not being listened to. But Justin was also there. He's one of the organizers. He's got some important things to say, too, and we'll hear all of that in a moment here on VOCM's Open Line. Welcome back to Open Line. Good to be with you. I'm Tim Powers sitting in for Patty uh, today. Now, last week, of course, the Canadian Association of Police Governance had its annual conference at the Delta Hotel in St. John's. Lots of headlines made by former RNC Chief Joe Boland, who said uh, while there, and I'm quoting Boland, it was a concentrated effort by several to push me out the door because I was holding people accountable and that I wanted to open up the RNC and include community into everything that we were doing. Well, Joe Boland wasn't the only person there, uh, also there and also part of the conference and offering uh, his perspective was Justin Campbell of the Indigenous Coalition uh, first Voice Urban Indigenous Coalition, and uh, Justin had a number of recommendations to make and uh, spoke at this this event, and where you want to get his take. Now, Justin, uh, how are you today? I'm great, Tim. How are you? I am good. Why don't you, for the listeners, give a sense of, of, of who First Voice Urban Indigenous Coalition is and what um, issues you uh, speak to? Sure. So First Voice is a coalition of Indigenous people, service providers, and a handful of government agencies. And essentially, our role is to coordinate efforts to advance truth and reconciliation in Newfoundland and Labrador. And part of that, of course, um, from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report deals with policing and, and governance and how policing has impacted uh, significantly in, in Indigenous peoples um, across the country. What did you go to that conference hoping to do, and were you able to do it? 
So the interesting thing is this is a national conference. Uh, we played no role in actually organizing okay. it, but the organizers did reach out to us and they said, hey, we recognize that you've been doing a lot of work around police oversight. We'd like to uh, have you come speak to this national conference of policing experts to give us um, an overview about what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador when it comes to policing. And what is happening? Uh, how, how, how is this province and how are police forces, I guess there are two principally here, the RNC and the RCMP, doing as it relates to policing and um, uh, understanding uh, and managing and welcoming uh, Indigenous relationships? Well, look, I think most people across the province recognize that the model of police oversight and governance that we have in this province is fundamentally broken. Unlike uh, virtually every other Canadian jurisdiction, we don't have a police oversight board. Mm -hmm. And for people who may not be familiar with what these boards do across the country, they do things uh, like setting high-level policies around recruitment standards. They define use of uh, the standards around use of force. They set training requirements for police officers. Right now in Newfoundland and Labrador, all of these things are done by politicians. They're not done um, in response to community priorities or uh, community needs. Um, and this really separates us uh, from the rest of the country. And and ju- ju- we can I ask you, what, so just, just, yeah. just, sorry, Justin, just on that, because it's an important point as we're beginning the conversation. Why have we never had one? That's what have you learned I, in, your, I, in the work that you've done? <laughs> I think the reason why we've never had one is the people of the province uh, haven't demanded it vocally okay. enough. And I think there is a lack of recognition that this is a common sense idea right across Mm -hmm. the the country. Um, But look, when we released our 26 recommendations on how uh, police governance could be improved in uh, this province, we released those recommendations uh, nearly a year ago now. Um, to the absolute silence of the provincial government. They've yet to even uh, make any kind of public statement about what they think about these recommendations, um, which, I mean, the people of the province should demand better from from their government. We're looking at problems like on-duty RNC officers sexually assaulting people Mm -hmm. downtown. We're looking at um, a variety of other problems. Uh, On the West Coast, there was essentially a home invasion by the RCMP. Um, We've got, uh, as the former chief of the RNC at uh, this conference said, there's a culture of unaccountability. There's a lack of transparency. Um, Policing are not, police are not working on priorities that really matter to people in this province. We've got a slew of problems just like this. And the best way to address this is by reforming the system of police governance that we use in this province. We need a police board that is civilian-led, that's independent of police, that's politically neutral, and that reflects the province's diverse communities and populations, including Indigenous people, but also including racialized uh, groups, also taking into account the geography of the province, all of these things. Um, Only with a police oversight board like that can we make sure that policing is transparent and accountable uh, Mm -hmm. to the communities who are served by police. And, and, and as you say, it's very common. There's where I am in Ottawa. There's a police service board. Toronto. There's a police service board. Most yeah. most uh, jurisdictions have you. Yeah. What role does data play here? Because I know I've certainly seen some national data, which speaks to a disproportionate number of um, 
police uh, and First Nations Indigenous people interactions. Uh, and a lot of some of that is attributed, again, to some of what you're alluding to, a lack of yep. training, a lack of understanding. How does data influence what's happening here or does it? Yeah, well, this is exactly why First Voice as an urban Indigenous group mm -hmm. has been um, so vocal about this issue, um, because the recommendations that we develop are based um, fundamentally on the calls for justice that came out of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous mm -hmm. Women and Girls. That inquiry, inquiry was called because... Um, there was a recognition, at least at the federal level, that policing has failed many people in this country, but especially Indigenous women. Um, mm -hmm. Indigenous women are far, far more likely than other demographics to go missing. Their cases are far, far less likely to be investigated by police because of a variety of assumptions and essentially systemic uh, racism. So the National Inquiry put forward recommendations mm -hmm. on how police oversight boards can be working with the kind of uh, demographic data that you mentioned um, to address these problems at a high level um, at a very high level, um, taking uh, politicians out of the equation so, so that we're getting um, policy developed by grassroots, by community, um, and of course, uh, all of that presupposes that there's already a police oversight board in place, which there is not in this province. So we're, we are well behind on implementing uh, these kinds of uh, changes that were recommended by the National Inquiry. Uh, we're well behind uh, being in any kind of position at all to address the systemic racism that exists in policing. Is there any, uh, and I don't doubt it would be significantly different in terms of proportionality, is there any local data that we have about Newfoundland and Labrador and, and the disproportionality here? Well, if you're talking about quantitative data, that would be a really great thing for a police oversight board to initiate an investigation <laughs> yeah. on, right? Yeah. So, Fair again, point. this is another way that we're well behind on this. That is exactly something that a police oversight board would be able to do. It would be able to say, okay, how is the impact on um, Indigenous peoples different or similar to other kinds of groups in the province? So two last questions for you, and, and thank you for uh, giving this more important exposition today. Um, what would it, I, I'm sure if people are listening, they're thinking, okay, this makes sense. What would it cost? What, what would be the cost of a, uh, establishing an oversight board? Well, look, it's the cost of accountability, right? Um, and our, our position has been, look, we allocate approximately $300 million a year to policing in this province. If you can't find money in that kind of a budget to um, deal with a very essential requirement like making sure policing is accountable and transparent, then I don't know what to what to tell you. Yeah, no, fair, fair point. That three hundred million dollars—that's significant. Uh, well, you know, it probably is point zero zero one percent to run a police board. I, I I don't know. I have no idea, but I can't imagine it's more than a couple of million dollars a year. Who knows? Which I know is a lot of money, but as you say, when when contextualized in that regard. Um, very last question: Where do you go from here? now uh, in terms of continuing to foster public discussion and actually getting uh, the government to respond to your recommendations and potentially take action? Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, like I'm baffled by uh, the province has yet to even um, make a direct statement on where they stand with um, our report. We documented very thoroughly the problems of uh, 
policing and police governance in this province in that report. The report is 56 pages long. Um, The province has yet to take a position on whether they even accept that policing is broken. They haven't acknowledged that. Mm -hmm. Um, We we spent uh, more than 18 months working with legal and policy experts, with community, with Indigenous groups across the province to develop our 26 recommendations. The province hasn't said where they stand on that. Um, they also haven't uh, set out any kind of uh, timelines for addressing the problems that we put in the re- that we documented in the report. And like the people of the province deserve better than this. They deserve to know what their government is doing to address these problems. They deserve a transparent and accountable process for addressing those problems, and we haven't seen it. All right, we'll leave it there, Justin. Thank you for your time today, and uh, please keep us updated, and we'll keep following this as well to see where it goes. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much, Tim. All right, take care. That was Justin Campbell, the Program Director of First Voice Urban Indigenous Coalition. Before we go to the news, we're going to go to line one. We have a caller uh, who's up by Confederation Building, or wants to talk about a a demonstration at Confederation Building over crime. Are you there, caller? Hi there. No, uh, I am here, but it's not Confederation Building. Sorry, it's City Hall. City Hall, okay. I'm just calling to remind people in our neighborhood and on our street that today at 2.45, those who want to go to City Hall and try to hold the city accountable for what's happening on our street and in our neighborhood, we would gladly welcome you. Uh, the, the problem with my street and neighborhood, Tim, mm-hmm. and not including, I'm just talking my one little street alone, we have eight to 10 bed sitters and boarding houses. So the city has to issue permits for these. So for the past year, the amount of drugs, vandalism, crime on my street alone, is it's unreal. And what are you hoping to get the city to do? Change their regulations? Because ultimately the policing is done uh, through the province. What are you hoping will, you'll achieve today? Well, a couple of things. Number one, the city gives the permits for these houses. Okay. Uh, number two, I want to know why are they discriminating and making the downtown core such a walkway for all this crime and drugs and and they're really you know they're knocking down the families that are here the families that have been here for generations they're knocking down number one our safety our property values everything they're making it a slummy neighborhood and no i don't want to see that happen a lot of these people who own these houses the city owns some a couple of other people own some but most of them are people not even living in this province so really they don't care what's going on in this neighborhood yeah uh well good for you for demonstrating uh we'll continue to pay attention to it and give patty a call the next couple of days to give us an update okay thank you so much all right take care okay bye-bye all right time for the news here on vocm and after that more of your calls nutrition exercise keeping the cold at bay whatever keeps you feeling great the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your vocm all right welcome back everybody gonna go to line three and talk to trevor trevor you want to talk about provincial politics what's your take 
Yes, hey, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Um, sort of a mixture of uh, provincial and national politics. Um, you're seeing the same left versus right in our province that we see nationally, you know, Polyev versus Trudeau and things like that. And it seems to me never the two shall meet. And I think that's part of the part of the biggest problem. If you say, for example, okay, let's have more oil exploration. Let's 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 let capitalism run its course. Let's get as much oil and revenue as we can. Well, the left is going to shout at you and say, "Oh, the planet's on fire," and that's true. Mm-hmm. And if you say, okay, well, let's restrict that, let's restrict oil and gas exploration, let's restrict resource extraction, uh, we've got to look at the planet, the right is going to say to you, well, you're a liberal woke, you're, you're yeah. nuts, you know. It's, it's just the, the, the dichotomy of it has no middle. And some of the more disturbing portions of it, too, um, that we see, I often hear the comment uh, from people's left of center, the cruel, when I refer to people on the right spectrum, the cruelty is the point. And I think that's um, part of the danger that we have as mm-hmm. well. And um, if, you're, if you're coming at your politics based on grievance alone, cruelty is not far from that. Cruelty is not far from grievance. And it doesn't matter if, you're, if your grievances are legitimate or not. If that's what you believe, if you've been hard done by, um, you know, I'm not surprised um, by the recent poll this morning that was mentioned previously about trust being put in Trump. I mean, I believe many of us see him for what he is and that he doesn't give to, mm-hmm. you know, what about about anything. But you're, he's still tapping into grievance. And the funny part about it is that, again, capitalism is the be-all and end-all. All the left skewers you. Uh, capitalism should be more uh, socialized. All the right skewers you. We're not willing to deal with it on a more complex level. Mm-hmm. Capitalism, on the one hand, has brought us more advancements and technology and standard of living increases, medicine, health, um, hygiene, just everything. However, what's the downside of capitalism? Wealth inequality, um, the planet's on fire, and you can't deny you know, why that is. So nobody wants to take a middle ground. Nobody wants to say, well, you know, there's good and bad points about things. It seems to me if you're not polarized, if you're not polarized, then, you know, your point of view is not listened to. And yet many of the vast majority of Canadians will end up electing liberal liberal governments because a lot of times what Polyev and, and many of them are talking about is grievance. And again, that leads to cruelty. And we haven't had a lot of it here. We've had little little touches of it. I, I keep an eye a little bit on the conservative leadership race in the province. Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit of social media from um, Eugene Manning regarding the quote-unquote rural, rural crime wave, again, appealing to how bad things are. And we had a, an issue a year or two ago with a, a pamphlet that was circulated during Mount Pearl politics um, that was really very very cruel and uh, quite frankly two of those may have come from the same same area and we've had you know chess crosby donating to the convoy and and a lot of that stuff will put people off and that does put me more to left of center but i I try to go more center because we haven't had it in many respects in some ways 
as good as we have from the benefits of capitalism. Yeah. But to say at this point the market will fix everything, I mean, have you seen the pictures in Corona? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, what, is it, what does it take for people to realize that there's good and bad in everything that we have and all processes that we do? Yeah, Trevor, you've spoken very wisely this morning. I, I, I would just add a couple of points to, to in agreement with you. Politics now, at least in Canada, um, political parties seek reward by certain numbers. So to win a majority government, for example, in Canada, you need about 36, 37 percent of the vote. So parties sometimes will focus on 36 or 37 percent of Canadians, and they may uh, a lot of that may be grievance based. A lot of that may be focused on certain issues that are important to that group of people. Not a lot of groups of people, I should say. Not a lot of reward is often given in modern political arenas for um, solution provision, which is messy, which means bringing different people together, which means winning some arguments and losing other ones, uh, or scaring people away from arguing. Your point about grievance politics is is well taken. Why do you think fewer people probably put their name on, on ballots uh, because of the, the, the maligning and the tarring and the personal character um, assassination that, that happens? which is part and parcel of politics and it and it's not right and it's not helping us because we we often live between the polarities not on one extreme or the other there's a lot of very good research that's been done as you re- related to you were talking about climate change earlier about how um, the polarities in climate change are making the problem worse as opposed to helping find common ground to achieve solutions so I you know I, I'm with you brother all, all the way through on this and ultimately it's up to us as electors as people who speak out as people who share opinions to push back and encourage people to not always be absolute or say it's okay to change your mind or to reflect on a position after you've heard new information but um, but now that that isn't the way that we seemingly reward politicians I mean I sit here and listen to you know opposition leaders right now and and again it doesn't matter what political color they are because opposition leaders have always doing this you know suggesting that their their idea or their policy or their slogan more appropriately right now is going to solve whatever ails us that's never true that's never been the case uh but it it it, it's how we we do things anyway sorry for the mini rant anything else you would like to add no it just said that if you choose to try to be more in the middle if you choose to say it's work you know it, it's work because you have to look at, like I said, if you look at capitalism, oh, let the market solve everything. That's BS. If you look at, oh, socialism and to the left of that will solve everything. No, it won't. It just won't. Um, some form of capitalism whereby you acknowledge its faults and you use an institution such as Patricia's government to try as best you can to curb the abuses of it. Well, maybe that's where we need to go, but that's not where your left or your right are looking at anything right now. And that's that's the saddest thing right now. Not that people support Trump. That's that's mm-hmm. a symptom. That's a symptom of what's occurring. 
Trump plays off as others do dislocation. People who are feeling and 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 he fe- he feeds grievances. That's the danger, right? Leaders and leaders have done that throughout history, but it's more acute now because the feeding of grievance can bring a quicker reward. And we live in an instant society that wants a quick quicker political reward. There's always been grievance. There's always been peddlers of grievance. It's always been how different candidates have got elected. But ultimately, the peddlers of grievance that sometimes become the purveyors of solutions. And with Trump, it's hard to ever see what the solutions were. Anyway, got to leave it there, Trevor. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. All right, Mike, I'm going to go to you. I know you got something to promote here. Michael Harris, Digital Marketing Communications Coordinator with Manuals River Interpretation Center. Are you there, Mike? I'm here. Thanks for having me on your program today. No problem. What's up? Uh, well, down at Manuals River, of course, we have our annual uh, virtual bobber race. Oh, uh, it's the bobber race, right? I love it's that the thing. Bobber race. So uh, right now, of course, you can get your tickets at bobberrace5050.ca, or of course, by giving us a call at 834-2099-188-747-8211 if you're outside the area. And um, this year now, our early bird has gone out, so our deadline's coming up. There's only 16 more days to get your tickets. So September 6th is going to be the deadline for it, and our draw date's going to be September the 20th. Now, you said it's virtual, so there's no bobbers going down, or are there bobbers going down? Uh, not since 2020. We, uh, uh, I used to be. Uh, why, why not? Is it a pollution issue, or what is it? Well, we made the change first during the pandemic, of course. It was hard getting people together, so we moved to a virtual platform. And then um, bringing the idea of releasing all these bobbers into the river and everything else, uh, we had a lot more success and a lot of great feedback over the past few years. So for now, we're looking at keeping it virtual. So, Mike, what I heard there, too, is also it's cheaper that way. You don't have to get all the bobbers done. And that's okay. you got to save money. you got to save money to do all that. I used to, used to love the Rennies River one years ago where they had the ducks. They would uh, they would go down there. And what does the money go for in your race, uh, the proceeds? What do they go to? Of course, it goes to our organization. We take care of conservation and the trails all along the Mainland River Trail System. So our trails, which are, of course, free to access and free to use, we work on maintaining those, um, maintaining our building, and pulling off a lot of great events for the community. All right. Give me one more plug. Where, where can people buy their bobber just before I let you go? They can get their bobber tickets at bobberrace5050.ca, or they can give us a call at 1-888-747-8211. And if your listeners are feeling like it, they can follow us on social media for a lot of updates at Manuals River. All right. Good man. Love your enthusiasm. Good luck. Hope you raise a ton of cash. Oh, thanks a lot. All right. Take care. All right. That was the Manuals. Mike Harris from the Manuals River Interpretation Center. Buy a bobber. Help bobber out. Let him roll down the river virtually, of course. That's smart. All right. Time for a break here on Open Line. Back with your calls after this. Welcome back. Well, you have to be living under a rock to recognize what we've gone through this summer and are going through this summer. We started in Kelowna earlier today, heat waves, uh, climate emergencies, and uh, Hurricane Fiona. We're not that far removed from all of that. Well, another issue, uh, 
coming out of that heat wave and of course rising ocean temperature is the impact that that is having on our seabird population as uh, Bill Montevecchi who I'm going to talk about in a minute has said he says it's absolutely huge even thinking about avian flu last year we had the massive die-off of birds tens of thousands of birds just in Newfoundland died last year and that he could have contributed to high mortality rate of infected birds. Dr. Montevecchi is on the line. How are you this morning, sir? Fine, Tim. I'm doing fine. Um, I, I, I don't know where to start. Where, where should we start? I mean, it, it just seems every day there's another story yeah. about our climate and the crisis we're in, be it fire, be it water, be it birds tell us about the birds what 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 does this die-off mean in real terms beyond what it's doing to the bird population yeah you know tim we you know if we were you know normally i would say when we're talking about the pandemic or things like that i, I would simply say it's unprecedented but you can't say that anymore no. because everything's unprecedented. You know, I mean, essentially, um, it, everything's just novel occurrence, you know. So the, the greatest impact on the birds clearly was that virus. And what is looking to be the case this year is, I don't know whether it's a herd immunity or what, but we're just not seeing, well, thank God, I mean, we're just not seeing uh, dead seabirds. And we're watching and we're looking. And we're, so it looks like so far um, the birds have survived that, you know, and gotten beyond that, which is great. Um, you know, last year, well, and it seems like we have a heat wave almost every year. I mean, mm-hmm. the water temperatures in Placentia Bay and off of Cape St. Mary's, uh, you know, it's like 18 degrees. And, you know, it's just beyond what, you know, the birds are used to. And, and the basic thing is um, it's beyond what the fish are used yeah. to. And, you know, so this is really relevant for fishermen um, and, uh, you know, and for the birds. And, and when it gets too hot, uh, those fish, you know, because they're cold-blooded. So their body temperatures essentially mirror uh, the water temperatures. And when it, and they have a tolerance. And when it gets too hot, they just got to go, you know, somewhere to get to cool off. So one of the things that emerges in the discussion about the climate crisis, and I I don't think you can call it anything but a crisis, and I am certainly not a full-on left-wing environmentalist. I don't think anybody would describe me that way, but but I'm a realist, and I I see what we're living in. I was just in B.C. I know people in Kelowna. Anyway, my my description aside... Technology is being cited as uh, as a potential panacea here for managing climate change. In the case of what's happening with uh, the birds and the birds you look after and and, and the, the like, is, you know, is are there technological options? Is that even real? I mean, we put little fans out on the island. How does it work? Yeah, you know, Tim, and I, believe me, I, I'm no expert, so I really can't answer that question. But I know there are some ideas about, you know, potentially releasing, you know, certain chemicals that might counter, uh, you know, ongoing perturbations. But I, I you know, I don't know, uh, and and I'm I'm always a bit, I, I'm always a bit leery of. You know, the the next solution is just around the corner. Well, we, we've been dealing with this, you know, 
for a very long time, and it doesn't seem like we're coming up with too many solutions. You know, the climate change just overrides, um, you know, what we do and our capabilities. And, you know, some of it is that, you know, we just don't, we're not going to control it. And, um, you know, we're just, we're just at risk uh, the same way the birds are. So, I think, um, you know, we don't want to bury our heads in the sand and we have to deal with it. I mean, and the only ways I, I, I can think of is the hydrocarbon. Um, you know, we know that's a pretty straight up uh, concern for greenhouse gases. So, you know, it seems to me that's the most immediate thing we can do. Uh, deforestation, you know, and, you know, the, you, you always hear these comments, well, the best thing you can do for climate change is not eat meat. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, apparently it helps with deforestation and other places, you know. So it's, it's a real conundrum. It's tough. And, and we're, we're just at risk. So just just uh, you're hitting on some key themes. So let, let's stick on one. And, and that is what you're seeing now. Is it a historical anomaly? Because you'll have heard that argument. Or are we seeing more consistent pattern of climate change that uh, is, is, is not an anomaly? It's, a, it's an actual pattern. Well, you know, I think it's both. Uh, you know, I actually think it's both. It's okay. definitely an anomaly, but it's a changing pattern. Um, you know, it's definitely changing. It's, the water seems to be hot year after year after year. And that, that simply was not the case. And so there are, you know, fairly good records. You know, we, we've seen colder climates over centuries and warmer climates over centuries. But it's the things that kind of stand out is, is the consistency of, you know, the extreme events, mm -hmm. uh, you know, be it fire, be it hot water, the, the consistency of that now uh, seems to be really, you know, really potent. And again, it, it's like they all seem to be, you know, essentially unprecedented, you know. So, um, we're, and, and the other thing, Tim, this is the other thing I, I think sometimes that's I, I haven't experienced it so much lately, but the other thing I think that happens is um, within the extremes, there's, there's this incredible variability where you can go from very hot to, you know, very cold in a really short period of time. And, and that variability also seems to be something that's different. As well as it's getting hotter, in some sense, there seems to be more variability um, in, in some of the patterns. And that's know? hard to plan for, uh, as Whew. as you rightly yeah. allude to. So what risk mitigation strategies do you have? Where do you go from there? Let, let me ask you this in about a minute and a half that we have sure, left. So sure. given what we have now and given that mix, as you describe it, of both anomaly and pattern, what 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 does it look like for the seabirds and our ecosystem related to them five ten years from now yeah you know that's the question that's the burning question we work at cape st mary's because with gannets for for a particular reason it's the southernmost colony of that bird in the world and you know there's about 40 colonies mm -hmm. so if you would expect change um and warming, we might expect that to be a place where we're going to see it initially. And the predictions in general, 
him, and, and it's happening to some. It's, it's happening to a, a fair extent, actually. Is a you know like Capelin are being found much further north uh, than they were, you know, in recent decades, and probably even in the century. And you know there'll be some expectation, you know, of movement northward, uh, certainly for fish, and and perhaps the birds will follow that, but. Uh, you know, and they, and they do they do have some tolerance, mm-hmm. but they're secondary responders to the fish. So it's going to be the fish, essentially, that determine what the birds do. It is, it is fascinating, and we're glad you are are on top of it. It is something we have to watch. Thanks for your time today, Doctor Montevecchi. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Tim, and any time. And, yeah, we're fortunate to be on it. I mean, I'm really lucky. I've got a crew of students um, that are just on it all the time. So, yeah, it's it's it, and it's totally engaging. Yeah, well, well you sure. keep up the good work. Uh, we need this work now more than ever. Thank you for your time today. Okay, thanks, Tim. All the best. Take care. That was Dr. Bill Montevecchi uh, from Memorial University. Um, Got to pay attention to this, folks. It's not climate alarmism. Time for our 1130 News. When we come back, more of your calls. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Heat wave 21. All right, we're going to go to Verna first, and then we'll go to the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. After that, Verna, phone scam. What's going on? Are you there, Verna? Hello. Hi. Yeah, go ahead, Verna. Um, thank you very much for me aff- affording me the opportunity. Um, I need to speak to you about, uh, unfortunately, scammers. Um, my mom lives in the little community of St. Shots, and she's 92 mm-hmm. years old. And unfortunately, there's scammers using her phone number to call other people and offer Bell Alliance services. Uh, that's not very good. So how's she dealing with it? How? Well, she's very, very frustrated. It started on a Saturday afternoon, and my sister was there with her. And uh, it got to the point that there was that many calls coming in that they had to just disconnect the phone. Really? And so anyway, what's happening is that people are receiving these calls, and then they're calling back the number. So one lady even went so far as to say she almost bought in on what the services were being offered. And I just received a text message from somebody in nearby Peters River telling me that she got a call from uh, Bell Aligned, and it was Mom's phone number. So how are they trying to solve this? What are they doing well, for Well, I, I call Bell Alliance, and, of course, I live in St. Vincent here, and I'm not on Mom's account. so I They won't to talk call. to you, yeah. <laughs> so I call back, and my sister is there now, and she's going to try to get through. And even that's painful to try to get through to Bell Alliance. As we know, we don't get through to Newfoundland anymore. We don't get through to Canada. Uh, but regardless, I mean, like, it's so frustrating. And, I mean, like, my mom lives alone at night, and she's got a lifeline, and we cannot afford for her lifeline to be impacted by these stupid calls coming in. So have you talked to any of the police authorities? Have they well, been I called any? the RCMP in Holyrood, and basically 
like they, they can't deal with it like really and truly the amount of scamming that's going on in our world yeah it's crazy uh, we we don't have enough police services and we don't have enough investigators and and getting to the point of rcmp uh, unfortunately like we lack there like the federal government really needs to increase the amount of rcmp that we do have and uh, as mayor in this community, I've sat down with the RCMP officers, mm-hmm. and, and, and they've told me that their services are lacking, and it's not their fault, but, I mean, they haven't de- had a, a pay raise in years. They, I don't know how many people, like, it'd be interesting to see the statistics, but, I mean... 17% vacancy rate in Newfoundland and Labrador. Sorry, Verna, didn't mean to cut you off, but there's a se- it's the highest in the country of vacant positions in the RCMP. Yeah, and, and you can almost see why, like, I mean... Like it's a, it's unfortunately it's such a sad world that we live in. Like everybody's out to scam each other, and the drug world. I mean, uh, you know, like it, like life as we knew it growing up as young mm-hmm. people in little communities like St. Shots, like is is non-existent really. And I mean, like for my mom at 92 to be impeded by this, like mm-hmm. she called me this morning, like she's after getting six calls already. Yeah. It's just a nuisance. It's mean. It's really, un- really it's is. A nuisance. I mean, like, okay, so my mom have lots of support. Like her, my, you know, my sister's with her. Uh, but I just feel for people who are living alone mm-hmm. and constantly getting these calls. And who do they turn to? Like, it's painful for me to call Bell Alliance and press this number and press this that number. Oh yeah. You know, like you're on the phone for about 15 minutes before you actually speak to somebody and tell them what you're calling about. So imagine like these, you know, anybody, like whether they're seniors or whoever, like trying to deal with this. And I called the local RCMP like in Hollywood and basically can't help me. Yeah, as you say, that it's, it's, of, of all the things they have to deal with, well, it's important to you, it's important to your mom, they got a million other things to deal exactly, with. Exactly, and uh, I understand that, like, in, but like, and it's only worse and worse it's going to get, how yep. smart these people are. Like, you know, that, that her phone number's ringing in, and uh, like there was a 902 number that called my mom on Saturday mm-hmm. evening. So this is somebody who had already gotten a call from her number, and I guess they're calling back to verify. Yeah, they're they're they have, they're so and they have they have drop lines. They have so many different tools. And, and I it, mean, they're calling and they have your children's voices. Oh yeah, well, I had this so, happen to my so aunt. They, yeah, they tried to get sixty grand off my aunt. It's it's terrible. Anyway, I have to leave it there, Verna. No, I just want to I just want to apologize for anybody who's gotten a call from her phone number okay. that it, it's not her, and be very vigilant today don't answer the phone unless you totally totally know who's calling you on the other end of the line good message thank you good luck to your mom very much for your time okay take care Bye. bye Oh, that is a pain. I, that happened to my aunt uh, who was suffering from uh, dementia uh, a couple of years ago, and they tried to scam $60,000 out of it. They did it very well, and thankfully she had enough mindset and sense of mind to, to deal with it. Okay, uh, as promised, the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. Uh, Minister Osborne's on this morning to talk about a story Paul Din has been speaking about, which is wait times for hips and knees. Uh, Tom, how are we doing in addressing the backlog of hips and knee surgery in Newfoundland and Labrador? Uh, we are certainly getting there. Um, so I guess, Tim, to be fair in how we got to where we are. Yes, please. Uh, 
you know, every jurisdiction in Canada is facing a surgical backlog. Um, it has been there literally for decades and decades. I think every jurisdiction in Canada, um, as a result of COVID, um, and I know people are tired of hearing mm-hmm. uh, COVID as an excuse, but as a result of COVID, there were fewer surgeries taking place during COVID, uh, fewer referrals for surgery uh, taking place during COVID. Um, so naturally, after COVID, there was an increase in the number of referrals um, with an aging population in, in Atlantic Canada and in particular in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, that certainly exacerbated uh, the situation. On top of that, we had cyber attack, which had a significant impact on uh, the healthcare system. So that, that sort of paints how did we get to where we are mm-hmm. and why are we more challenged today uh, than in the decades even uh, you know that we were dealing with the surgical backlog but it's exacerbated today so what are we doing to get out of that mm-hmm. uh, well we're we're increasing the number of traveling orthopedic surgeons uh, to St. Anthony uh, for example and that should increase the number of surgeries a year by about a hundred uh, we're doing same-day um, surgeries in St. Clair's, which should increase the number of surgeries by about 200. Uh, we are So those are currently taking place, currently happening, and we are seeing the impact uh, of that. Um, we are looking at new OR capacity at St. Clair's, which will be over 200 additional surgeries a year. Uh, we're looking at uh, starting orth- uh, uh, additional surgeries or a traveling clinic uh, in Carbonier, which will be about 160 surgeries a year. We're looking at a, a short-stay initiative in Gander, um, where patients will be admitted overnight for a short-stay uh, transition to outpatient uh, ambulatory re- uh, rehabilitation uh, clinic in Gander, uh, that will amount to about 600 additional surgeries a year. We are also looking to increase in the Western Zone uh, 100 additional inpatient surgeries a year uh, and 30 same-day outpatient um, uh, surgeries per day, mm-hmm. uh, which will add additional, uh, significant additional capacity. So. While some of these things are already taking place, the traveling orthopedics to St. Anthony and the same day at St. Clair's, the others are uh, in the implementation stages. And um, Carbonier, we anticipate having up up and running uh, before the end of September. So we're, we're about a month away from having that start. So I, I know what the political answer would be, and I'm not picking on you. The, the political answer anybody would give, we would want zero wait times, but that's not reality. We're always going to have wait times. That's the, 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 just the nature of medicine or anything else for, for, for that matter. But what, do you, what would be the optimum in terms of wait times, and when do we know we've made progress? What, what are you looking for to know that we've made progress? Is it three months on a wait list? Is it six months? What, what to you will define that we are ahead of the curve here? So there's different national, there are national benchmarks, uh, Tim, for each of 
uh, the five areas that are measured. Uh, what okay. I would determine to be successful is seeing a continuous reduction in our wait times until we meet the national benchmarks and then continuing to reduce the wait times until we are better than national benchmarks in the five areas that are measured. Um, and, you know, that is the reason the Premier, uh, just prior to me becoming Minister of Health, uh, put in place a Provincial Surgical Task Force uh, to look at surgical backlogs, what we can do to improve in the area of surgical uh, backlogs. The task force brought out 32 recommendations mm -hmm. looking at areas such as measuring and monitoring uh, operational improvements, uh, increasing and maximizing uh, the workforce. All 32 recommendations have been accepted by government. Okay. Uh, all 32 recommendations will be implemented. One thing that I want to correct that Mr. Din had said is that um, there was a confusion by uh, the person from the Provincial Health Authority and, and Dr. Parfrey mm -hmm. about not putting all recommendations in place. That's not, in fact, what they, they said or not what was intended by what they said. They said there's no end date uh, on these okay. recommendations because these recommendations will continue for, you know, once, once they're put in place and we are focused, we've, in fact, we've put in place a dedicated uh, resource to ensure that all of these recommendations are put in place. Uh, a dedicated project manager, we are also putting in additional staff on the health transformation team that will ensure that these recommendations are put in place. Some of the recommendations have already been met. Uh, some of them we are working on having put in place. Uh, as I'd indicated in the same news conference that mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Din had referred to, uh, we anticipate these recommendations all being in place within two years, uh, hopefully sooner. Okay. But there's no end date into uh, maintaining and, and continuing to implement uh, the recommendations. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, one very quick question. I'll give you about 30 seconds, but we'll take less than that probably. But just clearing up a number here. Mr. Din, I think it suggests there's about 144,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorans without a family doctor. What is the right, uh, and that may be the right number, but what is the number you're working with in terms of Newfoundlanders and Labradorans without a family doctor? So it, that's complex, and, and I know that that's a survey done by the NLMA um, based on a, you know, a, a small number of people that they've surveyed. We have put in place to ensure we get accurate numbers. Um, when you register for your MCP, for example, you're asked if you have a family doctor. Um, we understand that before everybody in the province renews their MCP cards, that it will be uh, five years, but we've already uh, got about a year of that under our belt. We are also... Uh, so do you have a number, Tom? Uh, we we do. We are working with the NLMA, actually, to try and refine their number versus our number. Um, because our number, uh, you know, we, we're looking at less than that. Okay. Uh, any number is certainly too many people. Uh, we will admit that. Uh, but, you know, we believe that you know, through our tracking for the, through Kai High, Kai High. Yeah, Kai, Kai Institute of Health Research, yep. 
Yep, so they indicate that the number is far less than what the NLMA are saying as well. So what's the uh, difference? What's the gap? Is it 10,000, 20,000, 30,000? Can you just give us a general number? I think we're still back and forth with the NLMA on okay. that before we, we land on a number. And I think in fairness to them, I, I'd like to go through that process. Okay. I, I, I don't mean to rush you. I need to... to, to, to clue up here but appreciate the call appreciate you giving us your perspective on all of this uh, big issue in the province as you well know uh, and getting at those wait times is every, in everybody everybody's interest thank you for your time today perfect thank you kindly take care bye all right that was tom osborne minister of health and community services all right jacqueline you've been hanging on you're gonna have to hang on for one more commercial break you're the first caller when we come back shortly all right welcome back last four minutes or so of the program and this person has been waiting and this person is jacqueline cook candidate for an alumni seat on the um, memorial board of regents just before jacqueline and i bring jacqueline on want to point out again that the elections for the uh, alumni seats six of which will be uh, are eligible for appointment or election excuse me happening now ending tomorrow evening if you are, are an alumni of the university, you will have received a number which allows you to vote. And again, full conflict disclosure, I am on the board. I am not a part of the alumni contingent, but I called out earlier for people who wanted to speak uh, who are running, and Jacqueline responded. And Jacqueline, good morning. Sorry to keep you waiting. Tell us why you want to be a candidate on the board. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on your show, and uh, thank you for giving all the info regarding the the voting. Um, I'm not from here originally. You can probably tell by the accent. It's a lovely accent. Um, That's all right. A lot of people aren't from here originally. That's all good. (laughs) But I have been here over 45 years, and uh, I did attend Memorial um, for eight years as a part-time student, got my master's in ed admin there. And um, I decided to run because I believe so strongly in our university. It's the only one in in the province. And I'm not sure that there is enough awareness of the tremendous impact its success has on the well-being of our province. I think it's often overlooked because a successful university, it boosts the economic vibrancy of the entire province. And um, I've always been involved in community, and uh, I've put down my roots here, and I'm, I'm, I'm just passionate about this beautiful province we have and all that we have to offer. And I'd love to have the opportunity to, to work with other board members to ensure the future success of Memorial, because it's something that's going to impact future generations right across the province. Yeah, well, you, you've said it well, Jacqueline. I think that's it's, it's well, well spoken. Uh, the the university, whether people are happy or unhappy with the politics and the environment and the stories recently about the university, it, it still is a, a central institution for the future of this province. And uh, uh, it's good to see you and, and 40 plus other people put your hands up for it because clearly people recognize that. Yes, yes, I agree, yes. I think um, that there are some concerns that we could address, and um, I'm thinking that 
one of them uh, in particular is is um, to provide affordable housing mm-hmm. for uh, our students um it's it is a concern for many and i think that needs to be prioritized uh, i know it's not just an issue here in newfoundland and labrador but right across the country but you know, there are so many things that um, if I had the opportunity, um, it would be wonderful to to feel as though I was making a difference mm-hmm. in a small way. I'd like to contribute and, and, and give back and, and do something that's going to help to ensure the success, the future success of our wonderful, wonderful university. Well, you've taken the first step by putting your uh, putting your name there. Uh, certainly, people have the opportunity to vote for you and 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 others until the end of the day. Uh, the day tomorrow, I would encourage them to do that. I have to finish here, but thank you for the call, Jacqueline. Thank you for waiting, and good luck to you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Take care. All right. That was Jacqueline Cook, one of the candidates for a board seat on the Board of Regents. Great day here today. Thank you to Dave Williams uh, for uh, for his excellent leadership. As always, great being with you, particularly in the studio. I will talk to you again soon. For now, I'm Tim Powers, and that's VOCM's Open Line.